when you're buying a stock of a company, right, let's say GameStop as, as an example, you're essentially trying to predict what the future cash flows of that company or the earnings that company is going to generate. But when a stock goes up 85% in two days and then drops 40% in the third day and then it goes up 80% right the fourth day, fifth day, the broker, the middle person is stuck with an insane amount of risk. Fairness to me is actually just giving them the equal chance <laughs> of that opportunity. Welcome to Fundamental Fairness, a podcast about financial inclusion from the lens of entrepreneurs, policymakers, and investors. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Fundamental Fairness, and we have a great discussion in store for you today. So let me set the scene. GameStop, AMC, BlackBerry are all retail stocks that have become the cause, symptom, and or epicenter for much of what's been going on in the markets for months, if not years. What we saw happen earlier this year was an online war between members of a Reddit subform and hedge funds. From the availability of liquidity to the role of short sellers to regulation of free market trading among retail or Robinhood investors, this saga leaves us with many more questions than we have answers. And so today we invited Andres Garcia Maya to tease out answers related to this discussion. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on Andres. First of all, Andres is the CEO of Zoe Financial, which pairs financial advisors with individuals seeking to better manage and build their financial wealth. Uh, so please check out Zoe Financial if you're seeking these services and making sure that those services are being curated by the right types of financial advisors. Prior, Andres was an executive director for JP Morgan Asset Management, where he helped oversee $300 billion in assets. He is a CFA charter holder and obtained an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he received both the Joseph Wharton Fellowship for Outstanding Record of Academic Achievement and the Twigo Foundation Fellowship. Andres is also frequently featured as a market expert and commentator on CNBC. And quite frankly, he's just a really cool dude. So Andres, thank <laughs> you for joining. Oh, man. Happy to be here. Great, great. Well, let's jump into it. So I started this conversation with three big names, GameStop, AMC, and BlackBerry, right? And uh, obviously, the title of this episode is, is it GameStop? Is it game over for retail investors or just the beginning? And so just help me set up the scene. You're hearing a lot of people talk about the trading of these you know, well-known brands, right? And how you know the impetus of this trading has you know, by you know, a Reddit subform has led to the loss of the fundamentals of the market, right? So can you help me better understand what are fundamentals and do fundamentals actually matter in this market? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me and you know, really excited to kind of dive in to this topic. So I would say that fundamentals do matter, not in the short term, but in the long term, it does. And we've seen enough scenarios 
you know, think about the tech bubble and prior to 07, 08, where everyone starts to say, well, fundamentals maybe don't matter anymore, but then they do. Right? What like, are fundamentals? So just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, great, great question. So when you're buying a stock of a company, right, let's say GameStop as, as an example, you're essentially trying to predict what the future cash flows of that company or the earnings that company is going to generate. And you're basically buying those future earnings. Like that is literally what you're doing when you're buying, when you become a shareholder of that company. When people talk about fundamentals, they're talking about future earnings, right? Like what is this company's likelihood of generating earnings and therefore those earnings transferring to me as a shareholder? And there's different ways that that, that money could be transferred either via dividends because the company literally returns the money back to the investors or via price appreciation of the stock because the earnings continue to grow and grow and grow and therefore the price kind of reflects those higher earnings. Yeah. So that's like when people talk about fundamentals, that's literally what they're talking about. Future earnings of the company you're buying as a shareholder. Great, great. So now what we're seeing in the market as it relates to, let's zoom in on GameStop, right? Because mm-hmm. we saw GameStop shares fly up to... At one point, they were valued at $18.84, right, at the beginning of the year. And then at some point in January, they peaked at $483, right? And I think now they've since plummeted down to somewhere in the 40s. Still higher than the $18.84 at the beginning. So I think, you know, if you're holding GameStop shares at the beginning of the year, not too bad. But if you you bought in at that high, right, of $480, in 83, you're probably not too happy. So are these fundamentals at work? Or I mean, it doesn't feel like No, it. no, those are they're definitely not fundamentals at work, right? Okay, so so why, why the volatility? What happened here? There's a number of different factors, some that are specific to the company, and then some that are more kind of macro factors that just happen to represent themselves in the stock, right? Like just by, <laughs> by chance. So the macro dynamics are you have an environment in which interest rates in this country are zero, right? So like if you want to borrow money, let's say for a mortgage, it's much lower now than it used to be even five years ago. Forget about 10 years ago. And then obviously, if you're borrowing to buy a car, for instance, rates are very low, right? So a very low interest rate environment tends to create more emphasis on things that could grow because anything that people used to invest to give them like a high return via interest rates like bonds are no longer appealing, right? So it's like it's like squeezing a balloon and like all the balloon goes in the other direction that still has a way to go, right? In this case, it's stocks versus bonds. So, so that's one huge emphasis. The other one is you combine the fact that you had COVID hit and a lot of the um, call it behavior towards, for instance, sports betting and other aspects really started to gravitate towards stocks, right? And then you have a lot of people that are stuck at home, or even like sports, you can't even watch sports, right? So yeah. all of a sudden, stocks became a game. And then people get a stimulus check, right? And there's actual evidence that a lot of this money just ended up in the markets, right? Especially for a lot of people that might have never had that much money in their bank account, right? And now they're like, well, my buddies are saying that you can make a lot of money in the markets. And and this is where the other component comes in. And now, Robinhood, you can trade for free, 
Oh, yeah. No, that's true. And we're going to talk more about Robin in a second. Yeah, so I'll leave Robin out of this, the equation. But essentially, those are some of the macro trends, right? I would say the stimulus check is not necessarily the strongest. I would say interest rates, for sure. And the fact that people are literally sitting at home, they can't watch sports, they're looking for something to do. And stocks became like a game, right? Like something you could actually pay attention from home. When it comes to GameStop specifically, you know, we could talk a little bit about Reddit, but even putting Reddit aside, stocks that are heavily shorted tend to be in general a lot more volatile than the ones that are not shorted. Can you yeah. explain what shorting is? And then yeah, yeah, yeah. the shorting too, because we want to understand the players to kind of set the field. Yeah, 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 yeah. So short selling in the simplest form is an investor literally borrows as a stock, like they don't own it, they borrow a stock. And then they sell that borrow stock. They don't own it, but they sell it. And then it buys the stock in, let's put it this way, in hopes that the price of the stock falls and they could buy back the stock and essentially make the difference the money in which they sold it and then they bought it back. And they need to buy it back because they don't actually own it. <laughs> they need to return it. Yeah. to whoever they, they lend it from. But if the stock doesn't go down, then in theory, their liability is infinite because that's- Yes. Let's put it this way. It's not something that unless you do this for a living, it's, it's something you, you should do because there's unlimited, there is unlimited downside, right? Like if the stock goes from 40 bucks to $400, right? You just literally lost $360 lock-in on the short. So, so on right? that- so now I'm going to introduce another one, right? Yeah. And so there are hedge funds that are the professionals or a big cohort of the professionals that yeah. are short selling. And they were shorting GameStop, right? Because, you know, it doesn't take a genius to be like, all right, GameStop is a retail oriented platform right. for gaming. Yeah. Gaming can be considered coming at all time highs, right? Especially during these times. People aren't necessarily going to the malls to buy their games. They can do it online. And yeah. therefore, I, I'm sure there's an argument for that, right? But that said, let me read you a quote here. Just to yeah. kind of, There was a bit of a people's revolution that took place with GameStop, right? And so on Reddit, that said that, you know, basically the conversation shifted from people believing that these retail stocks were undervalued because they're like, oh, no, they're going to come back to... Here's quote, let's stick it to these hedge funds. Let's show them that they don't allocate value to how much a company is worth, that we, the people, can say how much a company is worth, end quote. So talk to me a little bit about... Yeah, no, and I think there's a couple of things at play here. So one, let's put it this way. I am not against the idea that someone could short a stock. I actually think it does serve a purpose, right? So I'll say kind of like the just from having worked on an institutional trading desk, right? Like there is value in investors that are trying to keep the market honest, hmm. right? And in 07, 08, there were people that were basically screaming as loud as they could. This doesn't make sense. Like there's a lot of issues in the real estate market. There's a lot of issues with these banks. And those were, those were share sellers, right? Those were people saying, there is something wrong here. Uh, all these numbers don't make sense. So there's there's something to be said that it's a little bit of like the yin and yang. Like it actually is helpful to have people like that. And often short sales also focus on companies that literally just think that they are fraudulent. Think of uh, Enron, right? 
there were hedge funds shorting Enron because they literally looked at the statements and say, the numbers don't add up. Like this company, it's actually doing something that we think is fraudulent, mm-hmm. right? So there's value there for society to call out basically companies that shouldn't be <laughs> doing the things that they're doing, right? Having said that, that's the one camp, right? And, and I believe that there is truth to that. But like everything else, it's not black and white, right? Within the hedge fund community, there is very much this like traveling in packs type attitude where they either gang up on shares, right? To sell short and say, you know what? If we all go against this, maybe we could kind of like force it to go down, right? And on the opposite side too, they could like pump companies because eight hedge funds that all are, you know, bros hanging out at, at the bar say, you know what? I also love that stock. And then they all buy it and the stock goes up because they all buy it, right? So that's the concept that I think what you just read I could understand this feeling from the average, you know, retail investor saying, you know what, how come they could do that, right? And they kind of hold their noses, everybody, everybody else, you know what, like, it's our turn to do that and kind of stick it to them, right? So I I definitely understand that feeling of like, it is our turn now (laughs) to unite and do maybe what they do at times, but in a very small click, right, of very, you know, successful hedge fund managers. Yeah. And so it maybe that changes the dynamics of the game going forward, right? Maybe yeah. a fund manager that that doesn't have a great reason to short sell communicated it in a, a way that to avoid the retail backlash, so to yeah. speak. It's real because sometimes hedge fund managers kind of fight against each other, right? And they do that short squeeze where you're shorting a stock and another hedge fund manager is trying to buy into that stock and it yeah. creates what's called the short squeeze, right? And this occasion was very interesting in that like the people conducted the short squeeze. I mean, we'll talk right. about other influencers that like, yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. added momentum to that. But like, is this like going to change the dynamic forever? Like, what are your thoughts? The short answer is I don't know. What I know is that these things don't tend to last forever. Like in essence, this moments in time don't tend to last forever. So again, in the tech bubble, we saw a lot of this similar dynamics, which is, hey, you're an idiot if you don't think everything's going to a thousand, right? And you know, all of these people are investing. That means that I should invest too because there'll be someone else behind me that will buy this thing, right? So that's a little bit of what's going on as well on the retail side. And it's almost like every generation it happens because they haven't had the downside <laughs> of it. So I think that's one, let's put it this way, put it in the camp of, this is not the first time something like this happens, right? Like okay. people get exuberant, they have a couple big wins, they think they're invincible, right? Like my young cousin's like, dude, I could trade better than you can, right? Like all I do, all, I, I don't lose money. I don't even know what losses are. I always win, right? I was that guy too, right? <laughs> like when I, when I was younger. So there's a little bit of that. But there's another dynamic at play, which is social media. And I think that that is different, right? In essence, that's not going away, right? Yeah, I think that's the dynamic that I would say, I would say it's very different. So let's put it this way. The idea of a younger generation think they're invincible is like as all this time, right? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> but I think their ability to unite and make almost like um, a decision as if they were one, right? Social media has supercharged that in a way that in prior generations, it might've been a much smaller group that would have been able to do that. Now you get a lot more people that are able to do it like instantaneously with one Reddit comment 
you get hundreds of thousands of people doing the same thing right. versus maybe in prior generations, it was like, I don't know, someone with a huge microphone and as many people you could fit in that room, right? I mean, like that, that's as far as you could take it. Okay. There's so much you said that we need to unpack. Okay. Yeah. We're going to unpack it because <laughs> uh, I think our audience really needs to understand this and it's very important. And so I have the Thea rule, right? As it relates to uh, <sighs> when I don't invest in something or I pull out. And I think that the Thea rule is like, it's a function of, okay, when you're hearing about like the Andres Garcia Amayas of the world investing in a stock, you're like, all right, Andres, that's cool, man. Like, that's interesting. And you're hearing your friends and, you uh-huh. know, you went to Wharton and I went to Harvard Business School. So we're kind of like, cool. But, and then you hear like different associations. But then when I, when I hear my Thea be like, oh, so what do you think about the stuff that we should buy? I'm all in like this. I get, that's when I'm like, it's time to pull out. Right? Yeah. But then also that also sounds very condescending too. And I want to get yes. of the argument to that, right? Which is, dang, yeah, no, you should invest in this. You know, like I want you to build the muscle memory of investing. Yes. And that's so true. That's and, so true. And to your point, it's like, look, no one becomes a good investor overnight, right? Just over poker with some friends. Uh, we had a very big debate about some former traders and active traders are like, hey, you've never been through a downturn, so you don't know what you're talking about. And this other guy that's charismatic saying, I'm invincible. My track record is perfect, but I've only been investing for the last few months. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like everyone's track record is perfect. Now. But that's not to say that we should use that as an excuse to oversimplify the paradigm because of a non-institutional investor or slash retail investor or slash Robinhood investor which yeah. about right now, not being sophisticated enough. And we now need to protect them from the system, right? Because yeah, inevitably they'll make mistakes. But, you know, let's say for every hundred retail investors that came into the market, you know, yeah, maybe 80 go away because they got burned. But 20 stay, and that's a bigger foundation than it otherwise would be, right? Yeah, 100%. And and I think that what you said about the condescending thing is so true because when I started investing, and I, I started, you know, I was, in, I was in college, I started with the idea of like, I think I could pick stocks, right? And that's actually what got me excited to learn, even though I don't do like stock picking anymore. That's what got me really excited. It was an entry point. Right to your point, it was an entry point to want to learn more and more and more and more. And then eventually to your point, yes, you, you become more sophisticated. But if I didn't have that excitement about like picking a stock, I probably wouldn't have gotten involved. Right. Like for, so I totally agree with you. And I'll give you an example. Like my younger cousins, like much younger, they're, they're like, uh, you know, 12, 12, 10 and eight. And they wanted to ask me about this stuff because they, you know, they heard about it and whatever. And I literally just jumped on a Zoom and I was showing them how to pick stocks. And, and of course, they're going to burn through the $150 that each one's putting in. Of course, like they don't know, but it doesn't matter, right? Like they're learning about it and they're excited about it. And I'm like, now if he's doing this at 12, man, like and he keeps learning, he's going to, he is going to be sophisticated eventually as an investor. So that's what I totally agree with you. I, I'm not against the idea of investing, even if you're going to, someone's like, assume you're going to lose that money. But the key is don't bet the ranch. <laughs> don't bet all everything you got thinking that you're going to be the best successful investor in the world. But more importantly, don't use leverage, right? And I think this is where the danger, I don't know if you want to talk about Robinhood, but some of the dangers 
that to your point, letting people invest, I'm all for it. Letting people invest and use leverage without them understanding how to use leverage to invest. Yeah, for instance, options, super dangerous. (laughs) Let's talk about Robinhood. Let's talk about regulating the trade in the free markets and who gets more regulated versus others based on the quote-unquote sophistication of that investment. That is the crux of today's conversation. So, So just for context, so as I mentioned, the title of this podcast is GameStop is Game Over for Retail Investors or just the beginning. But initially, the title was Robinhood, A Forest for Good or Evil. But everyone I was hearing people say, look, the problem with using Robinhood as your headline is that Robinhood's complicated, right? I think there is an element of Robinhood being a platform. And so for context of everyone listening, Robin is a platform that makes buying and selling stocks easy for the common person. They're literally not charging fees or abysmally low fees relative to what it costs to do this. And they're also gamifying the process so that just the general experience is, is exciting. It's almost as if it were a game. And I think in turn, it's made it trading in terms of how much you want to trade and how you trade a lot more accessible yeah. to everyday person than it would be otherwise. And look, I've seen Robinhood. I've also seen I'm on Charles Schwab, but the experience is different. It is cool oh, for sure. right? from that perspective. And those are the parts that I'd like about Robinhood. I think the other elements of Robinhood is the platform is powered by one of the largest hedge funds in the world, Citadel, right? So it's almost like a front for, if you will, a big Wall Street fund, if you will. But that's made itself accessible to the common person. So I I, I still don't see the hypocrisy in that. There are many that do. But then yeah. the biggest controversy was when, you know, obviously GameStop trading volume were, were at incredibly high volumes. And, yeah. and Robinhood effectively, many people don't know this, but, you know, pressured by the SEC. And it wasn't just Robinhood. Everyone did it. But Robinhood was the headline. Halted trading for the everyday person. And of course, there are, you know, people like AOC revolted against Robinhood. Be like, you yeah. guys hypocrites. Why are you doing what yeah. you're doing? So if you don't mind, can you give me a little bit more background on why they halted their trading? Because I think it's important that people understand that. Just to kind of de- yeah, so this is one of those that you could go really down a, a rabbit hole. So I'll try to keep it kind of high level. But essentially, when you buy and sell a stock in this country, you don't actually instantaneously get that stock like in your account, right? There's actually three days in which it takes that trade to settle, right? Like to actually make it to where it's supposed to go, either to your account or, or if you're selling to the other person's account. So as a broker, right? Think about as a broker as like a middle person, mm-hmm. right? Robinhood needs to account for the fact that for three days, it's like nobody's money. Like they're stuck with the risk until it settles on the other side, right? So those three days usually are not that big of a deal if a stock moves, you know, 5%, 10% during that time frame. They basically account for that. Oh, this is going to be volatile and we could manage this volatility. But when a stock goes up 85% in two days, and then drops 40% on the third day, and then it goes up 80%, right? The fourth day, fifth day, the broker, the middle person, 
is stuck with an insane amount of risk. Yeah. And the SEC basically has to make sure that for that company to be basically not go bankrupt within those two days if it gets caught in the wrong thing, they ask for collateral. They basically say, you need to put up, let's say that you're now at risk $5 billion because people that sold it and bought it don't have yet the stock and you're stuck with it and it's fluctuating 40%. You need to put up five, let's say, I'm just making these numbers up. You got to put up $5 billion of collateral or you're not going to be in compliance with our rules about how much you need to have set aside and i think by the way just for context I, vlad was on clubhouse and we yeah. did a talk with him on clubhouse and it was cool yeah. elon musk was doing this talk and he brought the ceo of robin yeah. Like, yeah yeah he actually said he got hit up for a liability i believe of four billion yeah yeah and at that point in time robin hood over the life of their business had raised i think two billion yeah um, maybe an order of magnitude off a bit but like it was an order of magnitude over what they had everything that they've ever raised yeah yeah and and so i think people need to realize like they were put in a very difficult spot yeah and by the way let's put it this way you could make the case they should have known better type thing like hey you know but at the same time it was one of those things that it it is the equivalent of saying well you should buy insurance against an asteroid and you're like well i mean do i (laughs) i mean like what are the odds that an asteroid is going to land in my house? Right. Like that's kind of the scenario that they found themselves of like, of course we should have maybe had more, but it's like, it's so unlikely for that event to occur. So that's the situation they got themselves in. So it wasn't that they were saying lock the doors, screw the consumer. Right. It was more survival. Like they were like sec needs $4 billion of collateral. We need to stop the risk, stop the bleeding of this dislocation that we have between when the trade settles or not. So I'm not, let's put it this way, I don't think they're a victim in any way. They, they could have probably managed this much better, yeah. but I don't think they intended to like, you know, mess with the little guy in any way. That was really not the reason they were they were actually doing it. Okay, now that, now that we're, okay, so that's regulation on the Robin Hood side. This episode of Fundamental Fairness with Andres Garcia Amaya is brought to you by Camino Financial. Now, let's talk about the regulation, right? Because I think people only saw the headline, Robinhood stops trading. And yeah. reasons that it wasn't even like, I'm trying to save you from yourself yet. Yeah. Right? We're going to have no. that conversation in a second, right? But right. that wasn't it. So I just want to make sure that people understand that before we talk about the, okay, granted, but maybe there should be or should not be some regulation at the retail investor level about what they can and cannot do as a relationship. Yeah. So based on that, now that we've kind of clarified the wrong yeah, way, yeah. because I think it's worth kind of getting that cleared up. Now let's talk about, okay, what is, I think what you think of the name of the podcast is fundamental fairness. So what do you think is fair regulation? Yeah. The typical retail investor. Yeah. I, I think we're, we're Robin Hood started to play with fire, if you will, is allowing like a total novice, like person that just started investing, giving them access to option strategies that are super complicated and people don't understand the risk that they're about. It's the equivalent of like in the 07 or 08, letting people buy a house, no money down with floating rates, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, of course, the consumer can decide 
but do they really understand what they're about to do? Like buying that house, no money down with a floating rate. I think that's kind of the same mentality, which is letting people invest and all you could lose is the hundred bucks you put in. Okay. Letting them use very complex options that create a magnitude of losses <laughs> or gains based on your investment for someone that has never invested. And by the way, they make it free. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's so easy for people to do that. That's where I think they kind of started playing with fire of this idea of like, well, this even gets more people excited. <laughs> so, you know, let's throw um, gasoline into the fire and yeah. see what happens. So, okay. I think what we're saying is, look, we need to find the balance of when we make certain tools, especially tools that entail leverage. And leverage effectively means that like you can borrow against the investment bets that you're making. But that also means that you can lose three, four times more than you otherwise would make. Yeah. It would be losing if you were just investing your equity dollars, so to speak. Yeah. And, that, and that's where things can get very frothy very quickly. Now I want to touch on in that context, right? The social media element of this dynamic, but also not just social media. We're seeing some big names going out there. Elon Musk, and we already mentioned him once. Yeah. Elon Musk being like, not only are they the social media platforms giving a megaphone to the everyday, call it retail slash Robin Hood investor, but then you have influencers like Elon Musk or Keith Gill, right? That are directly attributed to, you know, putting a lot more kind of stoking a lot more of the fire, right? Yeah. And then, but then it's like, you know, I'm a smart guy. Like, yeah, you're doing exactly what you're doing. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so like, what happens here? We have not only just social media, but we have influencers. Some like Elon Musk, that I would say, dude, I mean, nine out of 10 times and then bet the way you're betting. But then again, he's sophisticated. He knows, but well, once again, I don't want to say a, a yeah. lot of people that have money with sophistication or not based on what we do. Yeah. But, but okay, but Elon Musk as an individual. <laughs> yeah. You believe in what he does, right? Yeah, it's pretty smart. You know, we, we don't know the mechanics of how he's doing that trade and when he pulls his investments right. out. So like, how does that change the dynamics here, right? Because for me, the everyday consumer that wants to give this a shot and then when I do follow... Elon on Twitter or other big influencers, I kind of want to do the trade that they're doing. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it goes back to what we were saying about if it acts as an entry point for people to get excited about investing, you know, great. Who am I to judge, right? Like what gets them excited <laughs> to invest? If it happens to be Elon Musk and Twitter or, or, or whatever it may be. I think obviously the danger with this type of approach is that to your point, you don't know when Elon Musk is actually buying. A lot of the times you got to realize that these people are doing it also just to get publicity and to get people, you know, to shine the light on them. But having been an investor for decades, I've seen this in other fields where even professional investors will say, Oh, I love this stock and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day, everyone's like, Oh my God, we should buy this stock because this brilliant person loved it. And then you actually look at the transactions and they're like, wait, actually, actually never bought it. <laughs> right? Like, or actually he bought that three years ago. He's out of it already. Or, you know, so, so you just got to be careful with what people say and what, what actually people do, right? Especially in social media, because 
you know, literally one day to the other, Elon saying, you know, Bitcoin to the moon. And then the next day, he's like, I'm really cautious on Bitcoin. And you're like, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. so yesterday you were excited and now you, so I would just be cautious. But at the same time, I don't want to discourage people. If those are the people that get them excited about it, right? And, and to learn, right? Just be careful with this idea of like what people do versus what they say. Because mm-hmm. in my experience, it's actually very often not the same. Interesting. Yeah, you got to double click. Do your research. And if you don't, you know, you have to be open to the consequences. Paying the price. Yeah, and, no. And, and you learn. That's how you learn. And exactly. And that's, that's just, and that's fine. But that's why it's important to make sure that when you're doing this type of investments, just don't bet the ranch. Like, and I, it's hard to say that to entrepreneurs because they're like, I bet the ranch on everything I do, right? Like I, I bet my whole career in my company or, right? So I totally get that. I, I you know, I'm a founder myself. But when it comes to the markets, when it comes to your company, you're in a lot more control of that, right? And since like a potential outcome, like your input of work might be reflected on the potential output. When it comes to investing, you can lose it all in 10 seconds and you have zero control over it, right? Like zero, zero control. So from that perspective, it's a little bit more dangerous than saying, well, maybe if I work a little bit, you know, harder this problem, I could, I could get to the other side. And who is he to say to be diversified? I'm going to put it all my eggs on. On this, when it comes to investments, you know, make sure you're not doing that because if you get it wrong, it's what Jeff Bezos calls like a, um, you know, a one-way door, right? Like you lose your money, it's gone. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to get it back. So, okay, so back to what was initially the title of this podcast: Robinhood or the proverbial Robinhood, because you know, Robinhood with all the nuances that it has can be yeah. a different thing. First, for good or evil, and then second part of the question is. Should retail investors or Robinhood investors be regulated going forward? Yeah, so I would say if you balance out the good and the bad, I don't think Robinhood is a force of evil, right? I, I, I really don't. Is there a lot of things that they need to improve for sure? But every generation has had a Robinhood, right? So Schwab was Robinhood in the 1970s, right? And discount brokerage was revolutionary. It gave access to regular people to buy a stock and it was so much cheaper than Merrill Lynch. And back then people said the same thing. Yeah, but it's kind of, you know, people are misinformed and who are they to know how to invest, right? They're they're the mass affluence. They're not the rich. So from that perspective, I'm like, look, it will happen. And there'll be another Robin Hood 20 years from now that will even democratize more of what we see now. So all in balance, I'm like, you know what? It comes with some bad, but but it also comes with, with a lot of good. And it's going to give a lot more people access and you know excitement about something that used to only be for the rich. So I, I'm saying more good than bad, but I'll preempt it. We talked about it enough. Like I do think that there's things that they need to improve so that you don't get the, you know, buying a house, no down payment with floating rates type scenario and within the Robin Hood platform. And then when it comes to the second one was regulations. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah, when it comes to regulation, it's funny when the CEO of, um, when Vlad, the CEO of Robinhood was talking about kind of getting to the root of the problem. I think that a lot of it has to be actually in innovation within the framework of how people invest now. So the fact that it takes three days to settle a trade is frankly laughable, <laughs> right? So that's an example of like, well, how about instead of telling Robinhood, we need to regulate you more? 
how about we make it so that trades settle instantaneously, <laughs> right? So I actually, when he was saying this, I'm like, of course, people are going to like dump on him, but I'm like, he's actually right, <laughs> right? Like that is actually the solution to a lot of these issues is that we have an archaic system <laughs> when it comes to settling trades. When it comes to the consumer side, I think the regulation is not so much on not letting people invest or having certain threshold of assets or you know income to decide who could invest mm-hmm. is more putting guardrails the same way that we put guardrails after 07 or 08 to ensure that people could learn, invest, get hurt, but not wipe out their whole family and the whole generation because of something they didn't understand. Right. So putting those guardrails, for instance, with stock options or complex strategies, even if it's little prompts, you know, like cigarettes, it's like <laughs> a prompt <laughs> saying like, hey, you know, this causes cancer, right? Like <laughs> for cigarettes. A little prompt saying you could lose all of your family's wealth for three generations if you click. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe I won't. <laughs> maybe I won't, maybe I won't <laughs> click on that. Right. I love that. All right, yeah. now, we're heading towards the end of this conversation. Yeah. I, I want to end closer to where we started, which is we started the conversation with fundamentals. And there's a lot of debate, you know, in these poker games that I'm in <laughs> around, and they're gonna all appreciate that I'm referring to them multiple times in this conversation. That's funny that the market isn't driven by fundamentals today. We talked about short-term, long-term, but I want to talk about the market today. Yeah. The market, do you think, is or is not driven by fundamentals? Number one, that's part number one. And part number two is, where are you? Are you a bull or a bear in the market? I'll I'll put it this way. When it comes to, do fundamentals still matter? I actually think they still do. Like anything else, like the way I look about valuations, it's people's willingness to pay for those future earnings, right? That's the other part of the the other part of the equation. So there is future cash flows of companies, and then there is the willingness to pay for them. And willingness meaning when people talk about multiples, it's like, am I willing to pay 10x future, uh, you know, this year's earnings 20 times, 30 times, right? So that's the component that is more driven by psychology. Right. The earnings are the earnings <laughs> like of a company. So when people ask me, you know, you think the market is still driven by fundamentals? Well, you look at earnings, they are growing. Actually, they've been stellar compared to expectations, especially this last quarter, and especially technology companies. They're printing money, like printing, printing money. And that's the difference between the tech bubble, right? And the tech bubble. People were putting like multiples on eyeballs. They're like, well, revenues will come and earnings will come at some point. And, you know, it was like, well, you can't put a multiple on eyeballs, like viewing a screen. Like, but nowadays there are earnings. So mm. I can't say, you know, with a straight face that there are no fundamental story here. Like there are, right? And the biggest companies are not technology companies that are printing money. <laughs> so, so from that perspective, the fundamentals are there. Now, the multiples, right? The, the willingness to pay for those earnings that are growing mm-hmm. is where it's super debatable, right? It's like, you know, should you pay 30 times a company's earnings, you know, because it's, um, I don't know, Facebook, right? Or Netflix, which is even much higher, is like 80 times, you know, next year earnings. Yeah. And that's the part that I do think that valuations have gotten pretty rich, right? Even though they are, the fundamentals are strong. Yeah. It's almost like we are forecasting them to be so strong that you could make the case that valuations have gone ahead uh, of and themselves. 
the other question I get also on that is, is one, multiples too high, right? For the willingness to pay too aggressively high. But the other one is a lot of the, what's being pumped into the market is credit driven, right? I would like to get your reactions if you think that's even true or not. And if so, you know, is there too much leverage in the market that can create some equivalent of a 2008 situation or maybe it's more of a correction what what are things that could be yeah look the higher the valuations go the more that everything has to work perfectly for the market to keep going up higher right because it's like the higher the valuation the more you're predicting like utopia for these companies right and it doesn't mean it won't occur right it just means the probability of no hiccups are along the way like starts to create this question of like, what if there's a hiccup, right? And valuations are are so high. Yeah. So the higher the valuations, and this is how I used to think about it as, you know, when I was as a, an investor in the markets is, meaning I still do it on my own, but when I was doing it like as an institutional investor, is valuation on the downside does act as a floor. You know, when you buy the market, let's say at 8X or 9X future earnings, like you did in 8 or 09, you do start to see a floor where you're like, okay, well, maybe the next year I'll be wrong. But over the next 10 years, when you look at the data, at these valuations, valuations start to kind of be the floor here. It's like, it's not going to go to zero for valuations on future earnings. Same thing on the high end, right? When you start to get really far away from where they usually are, they start to show overheating. Like they start to show like, hey, any, any hiccups, and to your point, it's not just going to be a 5% correction. It might be a 50% drop because the market kind of realizes, man, what were we thinking? Right? Like, why were we pricing everything to be so, so perfect? And that tells way, it tells when into your question of like, am I a bull or, or a bear? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way that I invest is much more taking a step back and saying, well, what are my other options? Right? Because I'm always invested. I have money on cash in case like emergency fund in case something happens to my family, et cetera. The rest is invested. Like I am, I am invested. So from that perspective, it becomes more of a question of do I own stocks? Do I own bonds? Do I own cash? Do I own Bitcoin? Right? Do I own gold? It's not a question of am I invested or not? It's like wh- which of those am I investing more versus the others? And I created a framework of saying, well, I'm not going to invest, for instance, Bitcoin. I'm not going to invest more than 7% of my portfolio, no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. So I, I started with four. And then when I got to 7% of all the money I invested, I sold it down to four. I don't care what was in the news. I don't care what Elon Musk said. Right? Super boring. Yeah. I just bring it back down to four. And then when it goes back up to seven, I sell it and bring it back to four. Mm-hmm. And I do the same thing on the equity side. I say, okay, well, 80% of my whole portfolio is going to be equity. So when the markets go up and it becomes like 90% of my portfolio, right? Then I bring it back down to 80. And that's literally called just like asset allocation, right? Like uh, finding what is, what do you feel comfortable with each of these asset classes and just kind of sticking to a plan because then you're not letting the wind decide how much you own or what. You're kind of making sure that you're, you're steadying, steady based on what you said you were going to do, right? And that keeps me from uh, buying into the hype or, or selling into the hype, mm. which to your point, it's exciting and super, you know, super cool. And, and I have like a slush fund of small that I play around with, but like the serious money, right? Like the one that like, you know, my kids going to school, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. all that kind of money. 
I don't play around with it. I stick to kind of my rules that I've set for myself. Mm-hmm. And that came with time. As I got older, I've gotten wiser just from being burned <laughs> so many times and, uh, by not setting those rules and, right in place. Uh, that's great. That's great. Well, I have one last question. It's yeah. a bit abstract, so I will sure. warn you. Um, and, and answer anyway. I'm not looking for an answer. Okay. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So what does fundamental fairness mean to you? I would think is fairness to me is not about giving somebody else like the better odds of winning because they, oh, they need it so badly. Fairness to me is actually just giving them the equal chance (laughs) of that opportunity. And obviously for someone like myself that, you know, I'm an immigrant and I kind of have an understanding of like how it feels to, not start in third base, but start like out, you know, in first base or, or, you know, and I know people that are not even in the stadium. right? <laughs> so from that perspective, fairness to me means almost just helping people understand that they were in second base already so that they're able to have the awareness to say, okay, well, I thought this would be unfair because we're giving this person preferential treatment, but the reality is we're just letting them into the stadium. right? Yeah. So that to me is, is fairness is, it's not about giving privilege to someone because they're needy and they earned their serve. Is let's talk about the fact that some people were way ahead and had all these privileges. And if they start to understand that maybe we start to make it fair for the people that are way behind and have all these barriers in their way to even play the game, forget about win, just play the game. That's absolutely right. And, and that's why we need to be talking about yeah, uh, this right now. Not only so that people understand it, but they understand the platforms with their benefits and some considerations. Um, right. And Robinhood's one app that that's been in the headlines, but there are many other apps out there. So, with that said, I want to do a quick plug into what you're doing at Zoe Financial, yeah. and also how can people learn more about Zoe Financial and yourself? Uh, no, that's uh, great. Thanks for for kind of giving us a second here to to discuss. So. As you mentioned at the very beginning, what we do is we're a marketplace that helps consumers that are looking to hire a financial advisor to help them with all their important financial decisions, not just investments, but when it comes to state planning, tax planning, insurance, right? Like their holistic financial picture. They can come to our platform and get matched up with a curated network of independent fiduciary advisors, right? And when we mean vetted, Roughly 90% of the advisors that apply don't get into our network. So we really mean it. These are the best advisors, not in the sense of their competence, but their aligned incentives to help the client, right? They're not there to sell product. They're not there to try to recommend something that's going to send them to a trip to Hawaii. <laughs> They're there to help the client and kind of sit on the same side of the table. And that's our job to so make sure that those advisors that we're putting in front of the client, you know, are that type of, of advisor. You know, you could find us by going to our website. So zoefin.com. You could click literally find an advisor. We also have a ton of resources on, you know, you talked about like the importance of like educating yourself on the markets, educating yourself. That's really what we're all about. We're trying to empower the consumer to make better decisions when it comes to their finances. And that's what our site's going to have a ton of content. And the beauty is that because we don't have products that we're selling, we could be super transparent on all the red flags and all the things you should be watching out for when you're out there that could do some damage. So I'll stop there because 
going to overstep my boundaries here. <laughs> Great. And how can people follow you specifically? Because you're you're clearly an influencer. You you're featured on CNBC with some level of frequency. So I'm sure people want to follow your voice. How can they do that? Yeah. So uh, I'm on Twitter uh, a fair bit. It's at a n d r g a r c, like my name basically, a n d r g a r c, Andres Garcia. And uh, I'm also uh, in LinkedIn. I actually post a fair bit as well on what's happening in the markets. Where you and I are starting to do more stuff in Clubhouse, so that's going to be the next frontier. But those yeah. are the two platforms usually where where I hang out, if you will. All right, cool. Well, please hang out with Andres and me on Clubhouse from time to time, and definitely follow him on Twitter and LinkedIn. I read everything that he writes and try to catch him on TV. And it's really cool. It, it, he's a master at this topic and really proud to have you here. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. All Take right. care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing, our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Osmar Manzano, talent producer, Jerry Cervantes, and our senior producer, Elianette Romero. 